welcome to episode 77 of the Energy Balance Podcast, where we teach you how to live without constant hunger and cravings, fatigue, brain fog, poor sleep, and other low energy symptoms by maximizing your cellular energy. I'm Jay Feldman. I'm a health coach and independent health researcher. And joining me again today is my good friend, Mike Fave. Mike and I have been studying health and nutrition together for a long time now. And Mike also draws on his experiences from working within the healthcare industry. Today's episode is part three of our series discussing hormesis, which if you're not familiar with it, is the concept that is claimed to be the reason why many of the things that are suggested in the alternative health and biohacking space are healthy. Things like caloric restriction, exercise, various plant compounds, cold thermogenesis, fasting, low-carb diets, saunas, resveratrol, and various other interventions. And in today's episode in particular, we'll be discussing why you don't want to be forcing autophagy, mitochondrial biogenesis, and uncoupling, which again is one of the narratives that you hear by people in favor of hormesis. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about why the stress caused by caloric restriction, exercise, cold thermogenesis, fasting, ketogenic diets, Wim Hof breathing, and supplements like resveratrol is not supportive of our health. We'll also be talking about why autophagy, mitochondrial biogenesis, and uncoupling are not always beneficial, but might be in certain contexts. We'll also be talking about whether being tolerant to stress is a sign of health, why it's virtually impossible to apply hormesis in a practical sense, and the difference between reactive oxygen species that are produced in a high-energy state versus those that are produced in a low-energy state. And I should have mentioned this in part one of this series, but if you are new to this podcast, I'd highly recommend you go back and listen through episodes one through seven of the podcast, where we took some time to build a foundation as far as the bioenergetic view of health is concerned. To check out the show notes for today's episode, you can head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast, where you can take a look at the studies and articles and anything else that we reference throughout today's episode. And if you are dealing with any low energy symptoms, maybe these are symptoms you've been trying to improve through a hormetic lens, and this could be things like low energy or fatigue, chronic cravings or hunger, joint pain, brain fog, uh, other digestive symptoms, poor sleep or insomnia. Uh, or various hormonal imbalances or various other chronic health conditions, things like autoimmune conditions or heart disease or diabetes or anything on from there, then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy, where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course, where I'll explain how these different symptoms and conditions are really caused by lack of energy. And I'll also walk you through the main things that you can do from a diet and lifestyle perspective to maximize your cellular energy and resolve these symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, let's get started. So I think we've spent a good amount of time discussing the, the calorie restriction problems and all those confounding variables. And we see parallels and again, all sorts of other research. But I want to talk about some of the other conceptual situations here and problems with this thinking of, you know, thinking of things in terms of hormesis, as we've kind of been pointing out. So a couple of the other things we had always already pointed to as far as support for hormesis. One is that you see over time in aging and degenerative conditions, you see reductions in adaptive responses. 
So you see, to be more specific, you'll see reductions or defects in autophagy. And you see this in obesity, type 2 diabetes, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, cardiovascular disease, cancer, liver disease, any sort of degenerative condition. You're going to see impairment in autophagy. You'll also see maybe in a lot of cases, you'll see lower levels of uncoupling. And I'm assuming things like lower levels of mitochondrial biogenesis, things like that. And so what you're pointing at here is a is a problem with the adaptive response. And I've and so this is again by people in favor of hormesis, they'll point to this and say, if you have less autophagy and let's say diabetes or heart disease, then more autophagy must be better. It must be the opposite of that state. And so we should just do things to increase autophagy. And there's just a log- logical fallacy, a logical problem here with that that extrapolation, that assumption, which is that basically just because you have defects in an, ad- in an adaptive response does not mean that increasing the stimulation of that adaptive re- response is beneficial or does the opposite. In fact, it, well, we'll get to it in a second. But so so it doesn't mean that 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 is inherently beneficial. It just means that in a degenerated state, you are not able to adapt as well, and that also kind of conflates with the other view from the the hormesis side, which is that when you block these pathways, if you block the ability to have autophagy in response to various stressors, or if you block the ability to uncouple in response to various stressors or anything else, then you don't respond to the stressor as well and potentially cause degeneration. And again, same thing here. No, there's no, uh, like we don't disagree that you need to be able to adapt properly to stimuli, but that doesn't mean that the stressors are beneficial. It just means that a reduction in proper adaptation is harmful. And some rather direct support for this is, so you see in all these degenerative states that you have reductions in the adaptive responses, but you also see increased reactive oxygen species in these states. And reactive oxygen species are the trigger for that adaptive response. So you still have the trigger, but the response is not happening, which is a suggestion that we don't need to be activating the trigger more. We don't need to be forcing oxidative stress and adding more stressors to increase these pathways. We instead need to fix the ability to adapt to these pathways and whatever is causing that problem in adaptation and that defect in adaptation. So there's just, a, again, a complete logical fallacy there that in you know in this hormetic ideal, we want to be increasing the exposure to hormetic things to increase these adaptive responses to reverse aging and degenerative conditions, even though you already have excessive amounts of oxidative stress in these conditions, and they're not res- and you're not responding well in these conditions. And another problem with this view is, and we kind of talked about this. There are beneficial specific effects to exercise and fasting and whatever else, and you see benefits of those interventions in these states. You see benefits from exercise in these states. You see benefits from, uh, you know, from fasting in these states, calorie restriction in these states, all those things. And you, if you were arguing in favor of hormesis, you would have to argue that the reason you're seeing these benefits is because of the stress and oxidative stress specifically and lack of energy that they're causing. But these states are already characterized by low energy and excess oxidative stress. So that state, you're only driving further. And instead, there's, so instead in that case, it doesn't make any sense to, uh, claim that the that the reason why you're having these benefits is for the increases or due to the increases in oxidative stress and energy depletion, but rather they're due to specific effects, which is our whole argument. And I know I was throwing a lot of words and terminology in there. So if there's any, I don't know if it came across clearly or if there's anything you want to kind of sum up there to help me out, Mike. 
Well, I was just going to put a lens to it, which is essentially, it's like with these chronic diseases, what I kind of see is I look at it through Hans Selye's general adaptation syndrome. So an issue you have alarm and then you have resistance and then you have fatigue. So a lot of the chronic diseases in my perspective are kind of, or at least a way to look at it is that their people are in the fatigue stage. Their body is not able to mount that adaptive response effectively anymore because it was already adapt, like trying already mounting that response over an extended period of time. Right. And when you look and when you look at like, like the, the view there or the, the model there of with which to look at these things is you have like a litany of stressors simultaneously. So you have poor sleep, you have smoking, you have poor diet, you have job stress. Um, you, and then you have, you know, immobility, whatever it is, or, or injury. Um, and so you have all these things going to the bucket and the body is desperately trying to maintain some degree of homeostasis, right? To manage itself, to maintain um, its general function. And so it relies on all these adaptive pathways. And then eventually you exhaust the adaptive pathways. Mm-hmm. Once you exhaust the adaptive pathways, then you just get sh- like, then that's you. And you, you'll see that, but at the, at the exhaustion period is it, then you just see like these frank chronic diseases where the adaptive pathways are kind of blown out and things just start, things start to degrade. So like a lot of the markers or indicators that we're looking at, like cholesterol or triglycerides or any, or these different, whatever they are, whatever lab value you're looking at, cortisol, prolactin, um, those are all indicators of these adaptive responses. You're because the, and the other lens that I like to look at things through with this is that you have like the body is intimately connected to the environment all the time. There's no separation, but there's everything is responding to everything else. And so you have this like constant, like give and take, give and take, give and take, give and take, give and take. And the body is essentially like the cells of the body have come together to maintain an overall environment. And so you, it's, they need the resource, you need resource to do that. And over time, if you don't provide resource and you increase expenditure of that resource because of whatever you have going on, not to mention you have factors going into the system that are impairing the ability to use the resource, then you just get like frank breakdown. And that's what you're seeing with heart disease. That's what you're seeing with cancer. That's what you're seeing with all the chronic diseases. And they all run through the same pathways. All the research is saying, oh, it's inflammation. It's it's oxidation. It's inflammation. It's oxidation, whatever it is. That's why you need antioxidants and anti-inflammatories. And it's all the common stuff. It's everyone, And then where you see these science magazine articles where it's like, Oh, inflammation is the new killer, like whatever it is. <laughs> so I, I think that, um, yeah, I think, I think it's important to look through the lens of alarm, resistance, fatigue, and then like a constant interplay where you have to give resource to the system and remove the negative factors on the system. And this is again, opposite of a hormetic response, which is you need to apply a stress to get an adaptive response. What we're saying is you need to minimize the stress and provide a resource to deal with the stress that you already have going on instead of just keep applying stresses. Keeping applying stresses on a system that's already broken and unable to adapt to the stress is a horrific idea. <laughs> it yes. doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and it, and it, this becomes important. And this doesn't mean that exercise or something like that is bad. And it doesn't mean it, it. It means that there's a context for exercise. If you have somebody who's a frank diabetic with heart disease, it's understood that you're not going to have them squat 400 pounds today. Yeah, well, beyond that too, it also like the the key point there, and just to interject is that the exercise is not beneficial because of the stress, right? Yes. If 
exercise is beneficial in type 2 diabetes, which is already a state of very, very high stress on that cellular level, then and then adding it wouldn't make sense for adding more stress to somehow all of a sudden be beneficial. Instead, the exercise is beneficial for other reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for including like you like enhancing utilization of glucose and having a beneficial um hormonal effect and then having beneficial effects on the gut, depending on the type of exercise that you're doing and right. increasing blood flow and lymphatic flow and, and all that type of stuff. So there's a yeah. whole host of benefits there, which are the specific effects, which are separate from like the stress itself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about that later in specifics in specific with exercise, but that's why something that's even very, very minimally stressful, like walking or doing daily activity around the house is so beneficial even though it's barely causing any stress, so to speak, it has a very low stressor effect, but it's still very beneficial. Yeah. I, I think the, the approach that both of us come from with this and like the perspective, and I guess I'll say for me, but I, I think we, we had enough conversations on it, but it's, it's, it's finding it's, it's uh, things are going to come with some degree of stress and it's, and you want to have that specific, the, the specific effects have the benefits. So like exercise and whatnot, it expends energy, but the, it, the goal is to find a level of exercise where you're not overtaxing your system and you're still receiving the benefit from the specific effect. And that's yeah. the same thing with almost everything that you're, now this isn't a case. It, it, you have to be careful with what you look at here because it's like, oh, the specific effect of cold thermogenesis is like, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get to it. <laughs> we'll get yeah. to it. We'll talk because we'll, we'll talk about how to navigate that that field and of, of evaluating uh, potential stressors through that lens. Before we do, I want to I want to talk through a couple other conceptual problems with the hormetic view. We've we've talked through several, obviously research based, talking about uh, also the we've talked a lot about the conflation of these specific effects and stressful effects or stressor effects. Uh, and another piece too, in, and we've talked about this in extrapolation from these studies, is the assumption that anything that activates those stress pathways is beneficial. Anything that increases the sirtuins is beneficial. You know, again, just kind of poor extrapolations from those the kind of research. Uh, there's also, uh, again, the idea that tolerance and resistance to stress is beneficial. And so this is, again, a a conceptual problem so to speak or question so to speak as far as whether it's a good thing for us to be able to tolerate a lot of cold without it affecting us or for us to be able to run many many miles without it affecting us or for us to be able to go a very long time without food without it affecting us are those good things and there's i guess i'm just going to share my my thoughts there because i don't think that there's beyond the research that we've already gone through i don't think there's too much to explained in those terms. But I guess what I would say is that a very healthy organism that's functioning on a very high energy plane, like producing a lot of energy and is in a very high metabolic state, should A, have, a, and we'll talk about this in more detail, but A, will have a lot more resistance to stressors. But when it feels stress and starts to shift out of its very highly metabolic state and shifting toward basically the dour state, right? The fat oxidation and and the uh, t- the turning the dial down of all those uh, of all of our functions, that should be noticeable. Because if it's not noticeable, like if it's not noticeable, that's probably a sign that those functions are already turned down. You're not noticing a decrease in libido because your libido is already in the tank. Uh, you're not noticing a decrease in energy because you're already fatigued. You're not noticing problems with your sleep because you're already not sleeping well. And, and so, 
to be able to handle exorbitant amounts of stress and not notice a change in those things, I don't think is a sign of health. Uh, I think it's a sign of already being in a constant stress state. And I think you see that shift when you're coming from all these interventions that add in a lot of stress, whether it's low carb or fasting or carnivore diets and, and excessive exercise and on from there, that when you start to add more carbohydrates in and do things to reduce stress, you notice a lot more if you go X amount of time without eating, or if you wake up and decide not to have breakfast, or if you push it too hard in the gym, you start to feel those that difference, that bump up in stress hormones because you're coming from a state that's low in the stress hormones. And so again, this is just, I, I guess more than anything, I'm just providing an alternative conceptual framework here that I know you, you agree with as well, uh, to this idea that we want to be really uh, tolerant to a lot of stress. Uh, and again, providing a framework that suggests otherwise. I mean, it, it, and I guess it's different. People don't really see to some extent, I, I think the extent of what like the body can handle, like the body can handle absurd amounts of stress. Now you don't want to be there. And and the reason I, the reason I say this, cause I see it when I work in the hospital and like, I, I think I told people what I did move back to work in the hospital. So I have been working for the past week or so I just started and just the level, like you have people with, I'll give an example. I have a patient who has um, like had multiple heart attacks in the past with stents placed is obese. Um, blood pressure runs almost to the two hundreds, even with medication at times. And they're in their seventies, almost eighties. And the, the doctor is going to, you know, cut take cut a leg out of their vein or a, a vein out of their leg <laughs> cut a vein out of their leg and then they're gonna crack open the chest and place it on the heart and the body at that age will heal from that now is the healing going to be perfect no but just like you're already in this massive dysfunction you have obesity you have metabolic syndrome you have like severe overactivation of the renin angiotensin aldosterone system probably ridiculous amounts of estrogen, probably a, a, a large amount of glucocorticoids. And you can, the body will still somehow find a way to recover, maybe not to the best extent that it could be from having a major surgery like that. It's just like, it's, it's insane. And the, the body just adapts to that level of stress. It, it, every, it, you get to a plateau and it just, that becomes the new normal. And even working as a nurse, the, from working as a nurse to not working as a nurse, like you just get used to, you know, if you're working 14 hours a day and you don't get to eat and you don't get to go to the bathroom, whatever it is, like that just becomes normal and you don't feel it and people don't feel it and things creep up over time and you just start getting these like nagging things and it just builds up, builds up, builds up, builds up, builds up. But it takes years for a lot of people, it takes their body years and it's just a slow degradation, but every step down becomes a new normal. Uh-huh. And so you don't feel any of the stuff that you have going on. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think that's, that's the, that's like it being able to handle that stuff is like, could your body handle more than you think it could? Yes. But the question is, do you want to push it there? And the, my answer is going to be no. And that's just from, from pushing it there and knowing like, it's not a good place to be. It does wear on you. There are costs of that, but you may yes. not pay them right now. And you might not ever pay them, but maybe your children will or your grandchildren, you know, like, like you may have been not you personally, Mike, but somebody may have been blessed genetically, you know, won the genetic lottery where they can eat McDonald's and do whatever. And they've got 
the six pack abs and the perfect hairline and and you know perfect metabolic function and everything else but them just you know put, go, taking on that stress over time if it doesn't affect them it'll affect the their offspring and on from there and you see that in 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 various studies like you know the pottinger's cat study that we've referenced in the past where you feed just one generation poor food and it affects was it five to seven generations farther down uh so yeah there's and I do think the concept that Hans Selye put out with the adaptation energy tank being drained is a good one. I, again, I, th- I think we mentioned this, or I mentioned this, but the only problem there's the it's idea that finite. the yeah that the adaptation energy is finite, as opposed to us being able to replenish it, which is a huge, huge difference, or or uh, yeah, differing point that I think is worth emphasizing. But it's a good conceptualization of the cost of that stress and how it leads to that degeneration over time. Uh, another example that we have talked about in the past is is operating on low amounts of sleep for a long time even like six hours a night which is pretty average i would assume for most people and not realizing how much of a of a toll it takes on yeah on your mental capacity your focus your energy your personality and so many people who i know in the in those states are you know they're totally fine operating on six hours a night like they've they've always been that way (laughs) yeah but you you feel the difference for sure when you're doing that versus when you're sleeping more right like you are very aware of that difference oh yeah but i do it's easy to get stuck in the cycle and forget how different it was and just feel like this is how you are and this and of course we can extrapolate this to all sorts of contexts about how we just evaluate people's behavior around us as if it's not affected by the various chemicals problems with the food they're taking in lack of sleep all those things but those things have massive effects on our behavior personalities obviously health and on from there and so this is just kind of a yeah a a way to conceptualize those things is is through that i mean just as these things are all costs of stress placed on on the body and the the depletion of our of our energy and and the resorting to hibernation type states and degenerative states when we can't when we can no longer adapt effectively essentially yeah and as far as the finite piece goes like there are studies showing go ahead sorry real quick i wanted to add in that degenerative states are actually still a part of the adaptation i shouldn't i I didn't mean like i kind of delineated there like if you can't adapt well enough then you hit degeneration but the degeneration tends to be part of the adaptation basically it's just a further conservation of energy and a further resort to the backup pathways that we just call pathology and we call that disease. But in reality, it's a completely normal response. It's just the next step of adaptation. It's on the same spectrum. Exactly. Yeah, just farther down yeah, that spectrum. Just the further down. Yep. Yeah, there's um what I was gonna say is as far as like that the 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 inability or the the finite amount of uh, reserve energy yeah. that you have, like there's studies showing that. Just in one generation of rats be, being fed a good diet, they can reverse some of the epigenetic change epigenetic changes that you see with um, with like a like one a generation of poor feeding. Um, and I think the reason that we don't really see the benefit, or the reason why I guess Hans Selye and I, this is me entirely speculating. I'm not putting I don't want to put words in his mouth, sure. or like you know say something that maybe he didn't say or not, but yeah. I think the reason why he, the idea was that it was finite was because like it's, it takes a monumental amount of energy to bring things mm. to start regressing those pathological situations. And it takes like 
it's like a whole lifestyle change and it's a whole, it's a whole framework, a whole mindset change, yeah. um, that needs to take place. And a lot of times I think in modern society, number one, people aren't willing to do it. And then number two people, like it's very difficult to do. And then the other thing I want to talk about and just briefly mention is that I think that, and this is something I see in the hospital and this isn't any science, this isn't like a research study or whatnot, but this is my general observation. I think the older populations, like, because I work with a lot of elderly people, I work, I work with a lot of old people. Mm -hmm. I think the older populations have more of that reserve energy in them. And like, I, I talk to them all the time because I ask them about their childhood. So like yesterday I had two patients who were 87 years old. They had a lot of chronic disease. Don't get me wrong. But when you ask them, like the guy was telling me when he grew up, first of all, obviously he was breastfed. There was no formula that his parents could afford to get. Um, but when he grew up, like he's like every Saturday and Sunday, we woke up, we went fishing, we cleaned all the fish that we caught. And we like, that's what we were going to eat for the, for the next few days. And then we went out dancing and then, and then the, as like during the week, like we had to work the farm and we had like our eggs from the farm and our milk from the farm and we grew our own vegetables. And it's like growing, like there's a series of critical periods during the, during your life when you're an infant, making sure the mother's healthy when you're in the womb, then, or I guess that's when you're uh, in your fetus, but then when you're an infant, when you're born, making sure you're being, you're breastfed. And then as you grow up as a kid, eating high high quality nutrient dense foods that aren't causing issues. And that's all the way up until you stop growing through puberty and all that stuff. So that's probably like in brain development up to 25. So if you can maintain a solid, healthy lifespan in that period of time at, or a solid, healthy lifestyle and, and have that strong family network, have that community, have, you know, that you don't have to do hard physical labor every day, but like be moving around and have access to high quality food, make sure you're breastfed, your mom was healthy when you're born and whatnot. Then I think that gives you like a large reserve of, of, of stored energy or potential energy or however you want to call it. Basically in structure, right? In structural complexity. Yeah. It's like that energy exactly. is used to build complexity that can be taken from later Exactly. On. So then down the, you have a longer span down the road where you can treat yourself like crap. And I think the older generations got that. And I think that what, what I'm seeing now is the newer generations are sicker, 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 sicker. You know, I have younger, 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 younger. Exactly. I have like 40 year olds with strokes and I have 90 year olds with strokes and the 90 year old with a stroke gets out of the hospital and doesn't need as much rehab as the 40 year old, which is insane. <laughs> yeah. It's absolutely insane. So it's yeah. just like, and I think it comes down to that, having that solid buildup in nutrition. It's like, and the other thing that people don't realize too is that you can, if you ask back and you you ask people, um, you know, about grandma, grandpa, whatever it is, or you have the older people in the hospital, they their generations live to old age. They had there's like, oh, my grandma's a hundred, my grandma was ninety eight, and she didn't have any of this stuff, and she didn't have any disease, and and so and my grandmother, she lived to ninety eight, and her diet was you know sugar, chicken, pork fat, bacon. Um, to whatever she like green, like collard greens and bacon fat, like things like that, which is antithetical to the current diets, but they grew up eating all that type of stuff, living on these, like a, technically a bioenergetic diet yeah. and being breastfed, not having all these insults to their systems. So they're able to progress longer. Um, I think that that's something that I think that's a very real phenomenon as all. And from my perspective, even though it hasn't been, I don't think it's been studied so much. So, yeah, I agree. 
it, it's something that I think is evident. Definitely evident. Well, your grandfather's your grandfather's pretty strong too. And he's 90, 90. Yeah. And he's in like just I think it's just a different way that people were raised because these like later generate like there's I know like I have friends who are like 30 years old, like pre-diabetic. And just like that's unheard of. That was uh, cancer in children back in the day, unheard of. Autoimmunity disease, they're they're popping up new ones all the time. Like it's mm-hmm. There's definitely something going on like compared to, I think, previous generations. And I don't think it's just diagnosis. <laughs> yes, that's often cited as we're just better at diagnosing these things. But when you ask people who around at that, you know, people did not have these issues when they were in their classrooms. I mean, I know like in, in my childhood classrooms, I had people with type 1 diabetes. And I remember like wondering why they got their juice. You know, they got to have juice whenever they needed, you know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah, that's things that were just not heard of and uh yeah i I agree you can't just chalk it all up to better diagnosis another like it's a good transition to this next idea that i think is a huge huge problem in the concept of hormesis which is the fact that stress is cumulative and you this is this means that it's cumulative across the board of all spectrums of anything that causes a stressor effect whether it's chemical toxins in your food pollutants in the air uh you know on from there, cold, excessive heat, uh, lack of carbohydrates, lack of food, lack of nutrients, uh, excessive exercise, all those things. But also over time, right, where the stress that you experienced yesterday or last year or 20 years ago or that your parents experienced also has an effect on you. And this makes like, you know, we've I think we've outlined a lot of reasons why this idea of hormesis does not there's a lot of problems with it and why I think it really is not compatible with human physiology. and doesn't make sense. But even if you were to argue in favor, if you were arguing in favor of it, or if, if you felt like it was legitimate, it's almost impossible to apply in a real sense. You know, people will say you just need to do a ketogenic diet or you just need to exercise. Or you just need to take resveratrol or metformin because these things are all hormetic. But the idea with hormesis is that there's a very specific dose it used to be an extremely specific dose that was supposed to be five times the amount of the no observed effect level, but they kind of did away with that when you started adding all these other factors and it doesn't make sense. But the, there was the idea is that there's a specific range where the stress is beneficial because it allows you to have these adaptive responses. And if it's too much stress, it's harmful. If it's too little, it's harmful. But when you take like that earlier paper on the Mediterranean diet, where they're talking about how every single food in the Mediterranean diet has hormetic effects is slightly stressful because the polyphenols and and whatever else and fish oil. I don't know if they were really studying that, but we would cite that as something this, that's. This was the monkeys, right? No, no. This was this was a a study talking about the Mediterranean diet being beneficial because of hormesis. Oh, from the first episode. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. And so, if you can, if you're considering those things, and you're also considering that you walked around today and that you had to get out of bed and that you, you, you know, the bot, your body temperature was a little off and that had to re-regulate and you fasted in the morning and then you did an exercise session in the afternoon and you got in a fight with your significant other and you were busy with work. So work was stressful. When you consider all these things, first off, how is it ever possible to measure the absolute amount of stress there to make sure that it's in an optimal range? Like you could argue, Oh, it's just based on how you feel and the effect, which I guess you would have to, because it's virtually impossible to, uh, calculate or I don't know. Yeah. Like 
put these into any sort of numerical fashion fashion that would make any sense or to um yeah to to be able to determine the absolute amount here uh but then on top of that it's like at what point would it be too much stress like it seems like when you regard that everything in your environment if even if you want to say okay that earlier paper where they said water is hormetic that's ridiculous and and whatever else but even if you want to just stick to the agreed upon hormetics how, it, how could you ever determine what that ideal amount is that would give you the proper results especially when you're adding all them together like at at what point so does that because like if you really try to apply it it's like okay if you do a ketogenic diet but you don't exercise and you don't take resveratrol and you don't do all these other things that's hormetic but if you do all those other things too is that also in that same hormetic range and you worked eight hours a day or you work two hours a day like at, at what point does this is this ever actually applicable in a realistic sense yeah and is there synergy or is it additive right it's like if you have a synergy of cold thermogenesis intermittent fasting and exercise and like, saunas yeah that's another one yeah and so many times and saunas how many times like how many multiple times is that stressful versus if you were to just you know eat a normal diet and do like a and go in the sauna Right. And that's right. So it's like the other thing too is like it's like the quantification of that stuff. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for quantification. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it, they're like all the different effects of all the different things together. We, we can't like the quant, the way to quantify it, or you don't really quantify it, you qualify it. And I think the qualification of that is how you feel. And so, like, for example, with, with what we were doing when we were in college together. It was like we were, you know, we were lifting heavy weights almost every single day. And then we were in class, we were intermittent fasting, we weren't eating a lot of carbs, we were ha- we, we weren't sleeping a lot. And then like it came, like things came to a head where it's like, okay, it wasn't hormetic anymore. <laughs> it was just like, okay, now we're now we're just stressed. Like mm. it we're like our adaptation ceased to be what it should be. And and that's the problem with the perspective, is that it, it's that doesn't make sense at all. That <laughs> it's like, oh, we we crossed the line on hormesis. It was like, no, like we <laughs> we just had it wasn't hormesis. We just had too much stress, right? And like the whole perspective of hormesis, like, is it obfuscates what's actually going on as far as what we're looking at it, as the idea that there's a general amount of stress. There's a certain amount that you're able to tolerate. It accumulates over time, and the goal is to basically minimize minimize that. For what your body is capable of managing it, it's not about keep adding it on so you have some adaptive effect it's not it's not a more pain more gain or no pain no gain whatever the idea is like the concept of hormesis leads to this like the extension i think that a lot of people take is like oh more it's and it, oh i think this is not even just for hermesis but in any dietary approach more must be better mm. so if i like even working with people like oh i'm low carb oh now i'm no carb and it's like well it's not working for me. It's like, well, you can't go negative carbs. So <laughs> what's the next step that you're going to do? It's like, you have to, there's a certain point where you have to be like, okay, this, this, this lens or this, this paradigm or frame just doesn't work. Like it's not a whole picture. And I think hormesis winds up getting into that, into that area. And especially because like study it's, and the, I guess a parallel to this too, with like the quantification piece or the synergy versus additive, um, is where you see something like, like even with nutrient research, um, you you won't be able to see like a nutrient research. Like they only look at vitamin D. But what's the what happens when you do vitamin D, calcium, magnesium, 
and vitamin K and A all together. Like the effect mm-hmm. is obviously much different. <laughs> so it's the same, the same thing applies to like the hormetic situation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, just the last point to, to add on to this, which we talked about earlier is when you consider all of the in, immensely stressful, toxic, damaging things in our environment and that everyone is being exposed to all the time, especially the people on the standard American diet and a standard American life and on from there. And especially the ones who are also experiencing various degenerative states because of it, then how could you say that adding stress is going to put them into the right hormetic zone to create benefits? And if you want to take the idea that fasting or calorie restriction or exercise is beneficial in these cases, which has been it shown is. to be the case because of the specific effects, not the stress, but that's the, then that's the point. It couldn't be because of the stress because you're only adding stress on to an already extremely stressed organism. So there's no way to, to describe that other than that it's way past the, the stressful zone, but there's other specific effects that are actually helping to reduce stress and, and that are having other benefits that again are not because of hormesis yeah and this isn't semantics right and we'll get into that in the next it's not a semantic thing this is like the frame is important we'll get into that in the next couple episodes yep exactly so with all these things in mind there's obviously a lot of conceptual issues and and issues in the research and everything when it comes to hormesis and what i'd like to do now is basically propose an alternative that um, I, I think we've talked about this before, but but we'll call it anti-hormesis, basically because the I think we're we'll basically make the argument that the opposite of everything that we've discussed, the opposite of hormesis is actually the route that we want to be be taking more or less. And to begin here, I want to kind of create some juxtaposition here and illustrate some of the differences that can happen when you are functioning through an anti-hormetic um, means or or approach as opposed to a hormetic approach, especially in terms of the various adaptive pathways we've been talking about in terms of uncoupling and autophagy and mitochondrial biogenesis and things like that, which, as we said, are not inherently problematic, but that doesn't mean we want to be doing anything that will stimulate them or increase their their activity or increase the uh, yeah their the functioning of these pathways. and what we'll get into here in a second is that we can actually be inducing these pathways through almost the exact opposite means that most people are suggesting when it comes to hormesis, things like ketogenic diets and semi-starvation that's called fasting or excessive exercise or cold thermogenesis or uh, resveratrol, whatever it is. And in order to do that, we have to talk through some of the physiology here that you know we've already been talking about, but specifically in terms of the uh, the activity of these pathways. And so we've already discussed that the the there are a couple of signals that act to stimulate all these pathways and that comes down to oxidative stress through the production of reactive oxygen species as well as direct oxidative damage and also depletion of energy and those are all ways that you can increase the activity of these pathways but there are different contexts that you can do this that result in in different responses and and there's some important distinctions to make there so the main way that I want to draw this distinction is between the production of reactive oxygen species in a low energy state that can also coincide with energy depletion, and then the production of reactive oxygen species in a high energy state, and how both of these will activate the same adaptive pathways for the most part, not the exact same, but some of the same in terms of things like uncoupling or mitochondrial biogenesis. But in the case of, of the low energy situation, the low energy context, 
It comes with a lot of damage and destruction and stress that causes long-term issues, whereas when it's done in the high-energy state, you have the opposite. You have the building of further complexity and structure and uh, development, if if you will. Yeah, and it's well. I just want to say that it's not it. We're not talking about all the pathways. It's not. It's not oh, talking about AMPK and certs and all that type of stuff. You're specifically referring to here the ROS generation signaling from the, at the mitochondria electron transport chain, etc., and the differences there between the between the hormetic states or versus the high ATP states, which would be that's what we're I guess defining here as the higher energy states. Um, yeah, that's, I just wanted to clarify that. That's all. Yeah, and some of the pathways will be activated in both situations. It's not really going through all the like worth going through all the details there, but um, yeah, so, some of them will, and, and it's an important consideration. So when we're looking at the low energy oxidative stress situation, this is what happens when either there are things that are directly oxidatively damaging, things like ionizing radiation or lipid peroxides that are actually damaging the structure of the of the cells. Uh, but we also have all of the various factors that can block our ability to efficiently produce energy, specifically along the electron transport chain, but sometimes along the various aspects of the Krebs cycle as well, is where these things have their effects. And this is, again, directly things that are directly caused by some of, so many of the hormetic interventions we've discussed. So this would include things like endotoxin, uh, elevated levels of nitric oxide, lipid peroxides, various metabolites of the polyunsaturated fats, some of the more traditional hormetics like methylmercury and arsenic, um, and also some of those newer ones like resveratrol, and then also a lot of the environmentally induced uh, sort of hormetic interventions, things that will create hypoxia or that will create excess lactate or that will create a high FADH2 to NADH ratio. And this is things like ketogenic diets, Wim Hof breathing, uh, fasting, excessive exercise, cold thermogenesis, so again, like inducing the whole heat shock protein pathways, all of those things, those all converge into, into an inhibition of, of mitochondrial respiration or of efficient mitochondrial respiration. And so what happens in these states, and we've kind of discussed this already, but basically you, I think you described it as uh, when, at least in terms of, of the polyunsaturated fats in the past, where if, it's like if you were... If you had a hydroelectric dam that you're using to produce energy, but then you had a bunch of holes in that dam, you start to lose the power for, you know, you lose the amount of flow that's going through that hydroelectric dam and losing the ability to produce energy. And that tends to be what's happening in a lot of these, in some of these situations, but in other ones, you just have a, you have various ways that the electron transport chain gets blocked. For example, with F the FADH2 to NADH ratio, you reduce NADH offloading at complex one due to competition for ubiquinone. So that's going to slow down. It's going to lead to a lower NAD to NADH yeah. ratio. Yeah. And a backup. And so it slows down everything. It slows down the electron transport chain. It slows down the Krebs cycle. You have similar things with nitric oxide that has inhibition along the electron transport chain and also throughout the, the Krebs cycle where, for example, it inhibits aconitase, which is one of those enzymes that moves things through the Krebs cycle. And then you also have inhibition throughout the a few of the complexes of the electron transport chain. So all of these things are basically directly leading to increased reactive oxygen species production and inefficient energy production leading to a lack of ATP. And you then have a furthering of this state because what happens is when you generate a lot of reactive oxygen species, in addition to all the adaptive pathways to protect against this, all of the 
uh, activation of the antioxidant systems and everything. You also have the increased, uh, increased activity of the uncoupling proteins, which drive uncoupling, which basically prevents further ATP production. Well, I guess it's just, a, I should say, it prevents further reactive oxygen species production at the cost of ATP production because you're basically burning through the substrate without actually connecting the uh, Krebs cycle and the electron, electron transport, transport chain. Yeah. 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 It, it's basically like the, when you have the electron carriers, which are NAD, NADH and FADH2 moving through they're they're basically, they're holding onto electrons that are used at the electron transport chain. When any of those steps get blocked, those elect with, you know, whether it's nitric oxide, whether it's too much FADH2, whether it's uh, any other type of mitochondrial poison, you, what essentially winds up happening is the R, the electrons basically have to go somewhere and they have to do something. So mm -hmm. you wind up getting this, um, you wind up getting the, this ROS generation at the sites like before where they're, where it's being blocked. And so the cell basically res registers that ROS generation. And then that ROS serves as a signal like, Hey, we have a problem going on here. Um, and it's, it, it's in combination with the ATP being, being produced. And this, this is where the really important, I guess, fulcrum com dif differentiates between like a hormetic response with increased ROS versus an increased ROS from excess energy generation is if there is ROS, like, so, like an increase in ROS with a, an adequate or a large amount of ATP being produced, that's a different state than if there's ROS being produced with ATP depletion. And so the ATP depletion is that hormetic approach where there's different blockages, whether the Krebs cycle or in the Krebs cycle, you may not get the necessarily the ROS because you're not generating the electron carriers. But at the electron transport chain, if you're having the blockages there and then you're generating the ROS, what you can essentially see is um, and you're not producing the ATP as the cell starts upregulating all these pathways to try and salvage what's going on at the cell and then also manage that ROS. And the step, the kind of like backup step that gets put into place is the cells just like, all right, we're not going to take these at these electron carriers and put them to the electron transport chain if it's not working. We're going to use the uncoupling protein to kind of get rid of the electron to protect ourselves from the ROS. Um, and then that same kind of thing happens, but it's different when you have higher amounts of ATP, where it's like we have a lot of energy being produced. And we can take some of this excess energy that, or the, the essentially excess energy, and we can convert that into heat. Um, so you have now you have a state where you have heat generation and ATP production, and um, the ROS is managed versus a state where you have just heat generation, lots of ROS, and like not so much ATP. And that's those are both very different states because. Uh, as we know, like, and you can put this in the context, every single thing that, that exists, that functions requires energy. So like, there's a difference between, you know, having a car with engine problems and it has, you know, I guess it's going to be not a perfect analogy, but essentially the cell won't have the energy to deal with the stress is what it will come down to because it's ATP depleted. And then it has to go to all these different backup pathways and there are backup pathways in place. However, there's only so long that you can run with those backup pathways. Yeah, and we've talked about this with the car analogy. It's like shifting the car into neutral and revving the engine, where that energy, the potential energy in the in the gasoline from the fuel, is being forced to just 
toward heat production, it's not actually translating into usable energy, which for a car allows it to move. And uh, obviously, when you're neutral, you're decoupling those two things, um, the actual movement of the car from the burning of the fuel. And so when you had mentioned the excess, excess fuel becomes or the excess energy becomes uh, heat, it's really the excess fuel, right? It's not like we're converting the ATP to heat. So just to yeah. add a little clarification, the there. substrate. Yeah, exactly. The excess substrate carbs or fats or whatever they are and uh yeah so that was a good description of what's going on and again to clarify i just to clarify a couple things i mentioned earlier so for example a low fadh2 to nadh ratio the means through which that blocks the electron transport chain is because of the competition at complex one and two for ubiquinone we talked about this in a previous episode so i'll link to it uh, but that basically causing what a lot of people cite is a good thing is reverse electron transport where you basically, from complex two to one, you start to have this reverse transport of electrons where things are going backward and then are getting offloaded into reactive oxygen species. And then you end up with the buildup of NADH, which slows the rest of the of the Krebs cycle and everything down. So these are just different means through which you're driving reactive oxygen species generation. Again, same thing happens with something like nitric oxide, which is produced in any sort of stress state where you have the inhibition of complex four, and then also you can end up with uh, inhibition of complex one as well from nitric oxide metabolites. And yeah, so when we are driving this high reactive oxygen species and low ATP state, as you said, this is not conducive to health, considering that energy is the currency of, of health, more or less. It allows everything to function, or it allows all of our cells to function, our organs to function, and on from there. And so this is not a state that's conducive to these to these things, and we've talked about how again you ap- what happens in these states initially is you activate these adaptive pathways, and that allows for the restoration of ATP production, but it comes at a cost of of borrowing from basically future resources and driving stress and turning down the thyroid dials and the reproductive hormone dials in an effort to protect against against that future stress, and what happens is is when this is happening over time and you lose you're no longer able to activate that backup pathway as efe- as efficiently to uh, bring the ATP production back is you tend to see all the degeneration that we've discussed earlier, the degeneration, the chronic health conditions, all of that. And you see this state happening in various degenerative conditions, uh, both like chronic health issues and also cancer. It's very clear as well that this state of low ATP and high reactive oxygen species drives these conditions drives these situations so i'm just going to share a couple of quotes here uh describing that so this first one they are just dis- they're discussing the this situation in neuropathological conditions various neurodegenerative conditions uh they talk about things that involve aging and hypoxia and ischemia and necrosis and so they state Taken together, our results suggest that ATP and reactive oxygen species productions are decoupled under neuropathic conditions, which may compromise axonal function and integrity. So there they're, again, discussing how in these states you have basically a situation where the reactive oxygen species production is going on and you're not getting ATP generation with it and that basically producing these states. And you see this in, as I mentioned, in cancer as well and the states that drive cancer there's a couple of great quotes describing this did you want to add anything about the neurodegenerative one well i was just going to say that almost every single chronic disease is characterized by 
and energy depletion to some so eat to some extent and even if it's cardiovascular disease it like for example any type of damage to the heart like if you're going to have a heart attack or anything like that it is characterized by a lack of blood flow and therefore a lack of oxygen and nutrients being transported to the cells of the, the cardiac myocytes the muscle cells with also a lack of ability to remove waste product and then you wind up you see the metabolic shift towards an excess like a movement towards uh lactic uh what's it lactic acid fermentation or uh, glyco like excess glycolytic activity and then you get the build of a lactate and that's literally what what they're testing for in the hospital for besides obviously like enzymes being released into the bloodstream like troponin or creatine kinase so it's like all the markers that they're looking at for all these for disease even like heart disease or heart attacks are markers of deranged energy metabolism and then also like enzymes being released into the bloodstream from cellular damage. So like every single step of the path of all these chronic diseases is characterized by these and that that's just one example, but by this some type of issue with energy metabolism and a lack of the cell having energy. Even sepsis, when you're seeing people have sepsis, is literally endotoxin and the and the immune response to it destroying energy production. Um, and then you basically just get massive fluid and electrolyte um, and basically metabolic derangements. And it's characterized again by increased lactate, which I know you're going to get to here in a second with some of the cancer metabolism. So I just wanted to put that front and center. Like it, it all comes through that. It's always some to some extent about energy metabolism and the different ways that it is taxed or deranged. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And We've basically, well, I mean, so you mentioned sepsis. Sepsis is like a very clear example of, of it for sure. But we've also explained how this is involved in virtually every pathological state throughout this whole podcast, right? That's what we've talked about in terms of heart disease, in terms of autoimmune conditions, in terms of men and women's hormonal health. Uh, I'm sure, you know, I know we've done it. You know, we talked about blood pressure and cholesterol, which of course are involved in the heart disease situation. We've talked about diabetes. All of these things are are all states characterized by uh by a lack of energy, same with obesity and, and weight gain and all of that. So, yeah. And, and, and so you see this in cancer as well. And perhaps surprisingly, you also see increases in things like uncoupling, which everyone is trying to encourage with this exact, you know, through these exact mechanisms of ATP depletion and reactive oxygen species generation. So in this, uh, in this study there, this paper, they state recent evidence suggests that mitochondrial uncoupling the abrogation of ATP synthesis in response to mitochondrial membrane potential promotes the Warburg effect in leukemia cells and may contribute to chemo resistance. So there, there they kind of took a, a little side note to describe what uncoupling was, which was basically the, the stopping of ATP production. But they're talking about evidence suggesting that this is going on in leukemia and is allowing them to prevent, uh, to be protected against, um, against chemotherapy drugs. And then in the next couple quotes they state since fatty acid oxidation has been linked to chemo resistance and mitochondrial uncoupling it is tempting to speculate that warburg's observations may indeed be the result of the preferential oxidation of fatty acids by cancer cell mitochondria so i like this because they're describing how fatty acid oxidation again whether it's ketogenic diet low carb diet starvation fasting or any sort of stress which encourages fatty acid oxidation uh drives mitochondrial uncoupling and is involved in this cancer metabolism and then the last quote that they state is that glycolysis remains the critical pathway by which cancer cells meet their energy demands, not because of permanent transmissible alterations to the oxidative capacity of cells 
but rather because of the inability of uncoupled mitochondria to generate ATP. So I think that they paint a really nice picture here where basically you have an extremely stressed out cell that is not properly able to respond and adapt essentially. And because it is in the state of low ATP and high reactive oxygen species, it resorts to uncoupling because it can't produce more reactive oxygen species or oxidative stress without it being so damaging that the cell would die. And so it, it's basically in this permanently uncoupled like state. Yeah, it's stuck in this uncoupled state, but then it needs to produce energy. It still needs to produce ATP. And so it has to resort just to glycolysis as its ATP production pathway, which of course is extremely inefficient. There's a ton of problems that come with that. You end up with a lot of lactate. And uh, and we talked about this again in previous episodes. So I'll link to those. But yeah, so you're seeing this. Like basically what you're seeing is the state that you're trying to induce by hormesis is the degenerative state. And there's a huge cost to that. And of course, there in the short term, the body will adapt to try to move out of that state. But yeah, we've we've already discussed all the conceptual problems with that being a good thing. Well, yeah. So it's just there, it, the hormetic state that's being at least that's currently being discussed or or being looked at is usually some type of ATP depletion with um, increased ROS generation to to invoke these different pathways. And what you're showing with this cancer state is that you literally have ATP depletion because the there's too much ROS generation at the electron transport chain, so the cell is forced. To, it's essentially exhausted its backup pathways, and now it can't couple the Krebs cycle and uh, the electron transport chain. So it just has upregulated uncoupling, and then to meet its energy, it would. And I think with the uncoupling, it's probably just that's where it's burning through the fatty acids, and then with the with whatever the other glucose supply, it's just running glycolysis and then producing lactate, and then so the cell is able to like maintain itself in this state. But as you see with cancer, like all the metabolic process and derangement that you're seeing there essentially just degrades the rest of the organism because it's not there's it's not cohesive anymore. Yeah. Well, and and the other piece there, which is that everyone talks about how sugar or sorry, how sugar, how cancer runs on sugar, right? Sugar is the main fuel. But I like that they're pointing out here that fatty acid oxidation is actually what is driving the state that's forcing the excess of glycolysis. And um, well, cancer runs on everything. Exactly. Yeah. And runs, it can run on amino acids for fuel, fats, ketones, glucose. So all those people who are saying that you just want to restrict glucose and you'll, you'll kill the cancer are missing big pieces there. I think the picture there though, is that like the whole perspective is like the same thing as the allopathic perspective of everything. Like we're going to cut, we're going to burn, we're going to kill, we're going to chemotherapy, we're going to whatever it is like poison, whatever the problem is, instead of right. Like if you, change the perspective where it's like, okay, there's a metabolic issue. The question isn't like, how do we just destroy all of these cells? The question is like, how do we fix whatever the metabolic derangement is in that area? And then I also, and I know this is tangential, but, but it, it, with that, from that perspective as well, the cancer situation becomes less of like, oh, there's just this one tumor in this one spot, one, this one spot in the body, but like there's a metabolic, there's like some type of metabolic problem all like systemically. So then even from that perspective, it just doesn't make sense to just, okay, we're just going to go blast your whole body with chemotherapy, which literally causes extreme amounts of ROS <laughs> and causes um, causes uh, energy metabolism issues and inflammation to kill these like individual tumors or cancer cells. And then like, I mean, one of the number one side effects of 
using chemotherapy and radiation, I think is cancer. (laughs) So it's like you destroy the current cancer now and which is, which may be a product of the body's current state. And then you wind up like also destroying other (laughs) areas of the body simultaneously. So like when you change the, to the metabolic approach and you look at things from, okay, what, what's the derangement going on in the cell? The question then becomes less, how do we kill all these cells? The question becomes more of how do we like correct whatever the metabolic derangement is systemically and then also locally. Yeah. And again, another, I'm going to move on to the next study here, getting at that systemic nature here and getting, you know, again, connecting these states to the production of a, of a cancer situation. Uh, so they state the ability of uncoupling proteins to uncouple ATP synthesis from respiration and the fact that uncoupling protein two is overexpressed in several chemo resistant cancer cell lines and primary human colon cancers have led to speculate. I'm assuming it means led us to spell to speculate about the existence of a link between uncoupling proteins and the Warburg effect. Glycolytic ATP production may concile the advantages of uncoupling protein 2 overexpression with the need of energy to sustain rapid cell growth. So again, kind of stating what we just discussed here, that glycolytic ATP production happens as a result of uncoupling, and that this is something that's seen in, in uh, colon cancer and chemo-resistant cancer cell lines. And then they state, Last but not least, it is important to take into account that uncoupling proteins are largely associated with fatty acid oxidation. Several cancer cells resistant to chemotherapeutics and radiation often exhibit higher rates of fatty acid oxidation, and it has been observed that inhibition of uh, fatty acid oxidation potentiates apoptotic death induced by chemotherapeutic agents. So what they're saying there is that fatty acid, fatty acid oxidation, burning fats, is what's driving uncoupling in these states. And that the cancer cells that are doing the best at being cancerous, that are resistant to chemotherapy and radiation, are burning fat at a higher rate. And then inhibiting their ability to burn fat allows them to die through apoptosis, which is a, a kind of more organized cell death as opposed to something like necrosis. Uh, and this can be induced by chemotherapy, uh, chemotherapeutic agents. So basically, you're saying that this they're saying it directly, the fat oxidation, but also the low ATP, high reactive oxygen species state with the uncoupling is essentially responsible for the cancerous nature of the of the cell. these cells yeah and that yeah. the more cancerous it is the more it's in the state uh which again is a sign of how degenerated the, the system is in not being able to properly adapt to it but kind of talking about adaptation energy before and and the idea here that all of this adaptation is coming at a cost is uh, and we you know we talked about this in terms of all these problems with hormesis, um, driving the state and putting you know forcing the state is getting closer and closer to a perpetual state in this situation where you are no longer able to properly adapt to it, uh, and not to mention that the adaptations to it are not beneficial in the first place inherently. Well, and it makes sense too as far as like. The, the increased ROS generation with the excess fatty acid oxidation. And that's the, that's exactly what you were talking about before with the competition between complex one and complex two with ubiquinone and the FADH2 to NADH ratio, where excess fatty acid oxidation is going to raise that FADH2 ratio and cause ROS, gener- ROS production, I think, at complex one because of mm-hmm. the lack of ubiquinone available to basically shuttle electrons from complex one. And so this is all driven by, so the fatty acid oxidation, it kind of becomes like a perpetuating cycle, right? Where 
you have more fatty acid oxidation, which creates more ROS generation. And then this, then the cell basically has to upregulate uncoupling to, to kind of manage that problem to lower that ROS, but it's not generating ATP. So it's forced to move into glycolysis. Um, and we actually, we, that, and that goes hand in hand with the apoptosis piece, because we've seen in the fatty liver series that we went over where when in fatty liver disease, the cells essentially, when they were, when they were energy depleted to a large extent, were unable to go undergo apoptosis uh, or autophagy, and were unable to undergo mitophagy. So that be, with a lack of energy, they weren't able to clean up the damaged pieces essentially in that pathological state. And when you look in the fatty liver state, because the fatty liver is the first step, depending on what's going on in the cell that in the liver, the individual that could lead all the way to hepatocellular carcinoma. And what you start to see with fatty liver is an overload of fatty acids at the liver and then an, an upregulation of fatty acid oxidation at the liver that essentially, as the cells become excessively exposed to ROS generation, and especially if there's large amounts of polyunsaturated fatty acids allowing the cells to become damaged, then the cell wind up gets becoming cirro uh, sclerotic or, or fibrosed. And so you get hepatic cirrhosis. And then the cirrhosis, which is scarring, it's just basically the liver becomes a large scar. The cells that are left over, because the energy metabolism at this point is so deranged, it can essentially lead to the cancerous state. Where So what you're seeing is that the cancer is kind of like an end state of extreme metabolic derangement characterized by excess fatty acid oxidation through the mechanisms that we keep talking about. Um, with upregulated uncoupling and then also requiring to, they're essentially, they're using glycolysis because they can't properly respire. So it's like, we need to get energy somehow. So like, even, even though our, we can't like burn our car, like burn fuel so that our car can run, we still need our car to run. So we're just gonna, I don't know what we're gonna do. We're gonna like, I don't know what you would do. Just like kind of burn your fuel somehow, like light it on fire and just like, keep lighting all of your fuel on fire. You're producing all this smoke inside the car, but you're still able to drive just a little bit. I don't know. It's not a perfect, <laughs> my analogies are kind of off today, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you, you brought up a great point, bringing back to the fatty liver situation where everything we described in the fatty liver disease, uh, disease series could be described as hormesis, right? The generation of further reactive oxygen species and all of those adaptive pathways and we we you clearly see that too as you, you know in all of these in all of those yeah. states and well we talked about it with ampk and the sirtuins and nrf2 and uncoupling protein upregulation those were all features of fatty liver and you had hinted at one point in the series like hey like this is also <laughs> this is what everybody's targeting for hermesis like it was like an offhanded comment that we were like kind of laughed about together. So yeah. And, and <laughs> I didn't remember that exactly, but that's a really, you know, as far as like for someone who's trying to understand the physiology here and what's going on in energy production and what's causing these states, I would look back at that series because we took a lot of time to actually go through all those pathways and processes and explain like with diagrams of what's going on in uncoupling, how is, how is something like fasting or PUFA or whatever driving a, uh, a low energy, high reactive oxygen species state. So I, I would definitely, and we talked about the FADH2 to NADH ratio and explain that in detail, all of those things. So I would go back and listen to that episode, but what you were basically describing is that 
when you drive these hormetic pathways further and further, you first end up with degeneration with some adaptation, which was basically the fatty liver situation. And then you end up with things like scarring, which is like the kind of later step there and cirrhosis, right? Which is is a precursor to cancer, which as you said, is like the end point there (laughs) of what you could say is, is excess hormesis. You just continue down the hormetic pathways long enough and you end up with, with that cancer state. Um, as as the cells are no longer in a position energetically to be able to adapt to these things because it's continually depleted over and over again on the small scale, which then comes at the large scale as well, as we've talked about numerous times, how these things drive inflammation locally, which drives systemic stress to deal with that inflammation, activate those backup energy production pathways while turning down the long-term thermostats, things that we see when we look at thyroid hormone, we see when we look at reproductive hormones, uh, over time when in response to all these states. Yeah. And the other thing too, I wanted to mention is it removes cancer from being necessarily genetic or any of the pathologies from necessarily being genetic and puts it squarely on metabolism. Now, this doesn't mean that genetics, some genetic predisposition isn't prevalent in the sense that the, that whatever that specific area is, is going to be the weakest link in the chain. That's fine. But you still have a weak, you still have it, the whole chain. And it's like, you just don't have to apply pressure to that chain. And the pressure that you apply to the chain is the most important point in my perspective. And I I think we would agree because that's where that pressure is the stress in the system. And that's why understanding the stress pathways overall and the allostatic load that we talked about and specific effects becomes extremely important because you don't want to put, there's no point in put, the idea here is let's not put the pressure on that chain. Let's not try to find out what your genetic predisposition is um, through trial and error of bad lifestyle, whatever it is. It's like if you you don't even have to go there. And then I guess the extension of this, and I know I'm, I keep going a little tangential, but there's like with the new elements of epigenetics, it's if the current generations are able to remove the pressure from the chain, would what does that eliminate that genetic predisposition over time? You're right. It's a great point, and it is all tangential, but but it's a it's a great thought process. You can keep if you wanted to add something else there. No, I was well. I was just going to say because, like, the genetic predisposition for things had to start somewhere, right? So, and it like so it's hard to say that it was just an inborn because at some point in time, like it had like then that's the idea. I mean, and it kind of goes back to like a religious thing of like some some type of original sin type of thing. But the idea there is essentially that there was always error in the in from the start. But that also doesn't make sense. Like that just. <laughs> <laughs> but I I didn't want to go too far on that because that now becomes more philosophical. To some well, and, and it's more of a discussion on evolution, which which is a discussion we'll definitely have at some point, and and breaking down things like genetics and epigenetics, and uh, because it it is yeah it, it's a important line of thinking and and of course when we're looking at these things on the on the minuscule level we want to bring it out to those larger things you know those larger uh lenses because it's so there's so much value there but go ahead go ahead well what i was going to say is one important piece that i do want to touch on in terms of zooming out to that larger lens is not only are we wanting not to add stress to that chain or or put pressure on that that chain and finding the weakest link but we can do the opposite right we can we can heal and regenerate those links and heal, you know, and repair. And those are all the things that require the exact opposite state, the excess energy state 
which has its own adaptations that some of which are, are as we were saying are very similar to the low energy state it's a it's it kind of it's a nice contrast or di- of context where you still see the same things like potentially mitochondrial biogenesis you know there's got to be some way to produce mitochondria that's not just by driving stress as much as you can um within the right zone of course which is an unquantifiable zone um, <laughs> all right we're going to end that episode there and pick back up in part four the final part of this series discussing hormesis if you did enjoy today's episode please leave a like or comment if you're watching on youtube and if you're listening elsewhere please leave a review or five star rating on itunes all of those things really do a lot to help support the podcast and are very much appreciated to check out the show notes for today's episode head over to jfeldmanwellness.com podcast where you can take a look at the studies and articles and anything else that we referenced throughout today's episode And if you are dealing with any low energy symptoms, maybe these are symptoms you've been trying to correct or resolve using a hormetic approach. This could be symptoms like chronic cravings and hunger, fatigue, joint pain, weight gain, bloating or other digestive symptoms, uh, poor sleep or insomnia, hormonal imbalances, brain fog, or various chronic health conditions or various other chronic health issues. Then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash energy where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course where I'll explain how these different symptoms and conditions are really caused by lack of energy. And I'll also walk you through the main things that you can do from a diet and lifestyle perspective to maximize your cellular energy and resolve these symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, I'll see you in the next episode.